1: Well, good morning, gang, and welcome to New Southern Garden. Of course, I'm your gardening pal, Nathan Wilson, and I'm so glad that you've decided to join us, as always, for more fun in the gardening. Oh, boy, what a week we've had. I don't know. You've been outside like I have, of course, at the nursery. That's, our, that's where we are. We're outside. We have an office, but we're never in it, especially in spring. We've been wet and cold, and it's just strange. But it's not really strange. We sort of expect these ups and downs, but still things are moving, aren't they? I hope that you've noticed things growing when hydrangeas are starting to recover. Maybe uh, from that winter weather, maybe you've noticed that uh, hydrangeas have died back pretty far. In many cases, they've died all the way to the ground, but they are putting out new growth near the base. And then roses are, our roses are blooming. I mean, it's been nice. They're they're usually not uh, disturbed. I've heard of a few people having issues with roses over the, the strange winter we've had. But uh, assuming that the plant made it, they should recover just fine. We need this nice warm weather. We're still getting some cool temperatures, still getting uh, cool nights. We're growing some annual plants, zinnias and cosmos and things at the nursery. And... You know, until we get those nice warm nights, kind of a steady night, things aren't really going to change dramatically. But it is great to see the change in the season and all the changes that this season is bringing. (laughs) It's crazy. Oh, but of course, today here on New Southern Garden, we are ready to answer your questions. This is the last Saturday of the month, which means that we've collected your questions to give you an answer. uh, take it or leave it you know i hope that we can be helpful for you uh everything we recommend may or may not work for your space but we do appreciate your questions and the more detail you can give us the more precise uh, we can be with getting you an appropriate answer and we've got some great questions today i'm going to have to mention that we sort of have a backlog a backlog of questions uh, i was not aware about Uh, somehow Somehow, certain messages got shifted into a folder that we don't normally check. Uh, but I happened to click it one day, and there were several questions. So some of these uh, are are older questions from earlier in in the winter, maybe. Sorry, not earlier in the winter, later in the winter, but earlier this year. So I hate that we've overlooked those. Technology is wonderful when it works, but when technology doesn't work, it can get in the way. Uh, But with that being said, we still want to be able to uh, answer our listeners' questions, and we do appreciate all those folks, all you folks who have been sending them in for the past several years, and hopefully we can continue to do so. We would love for you to be a part of our show in this special way, but, uh, you know, Throughout the month, we try to give you tips and ideas and inspire you and get some knowledge of certain things you may not have thought about. But we do know that your space space is special. Every gardener's space is special and unique. It's very unique. So if you've got certain issues that we've not come across or addressed, then feel free to check us out online at NewSouthernGarden.com and, of course, on Facebook and Instagram where you're going to find... Um, uh, contacts ways to contact us I don't know I got kind of got messed up there on the website we have a contact form you just put in your email address and your question feel free to give us your first name at least so we know who we're talking to and uh, maybe mention where you're located it's great to know where everybody is listening uh, particularly those who are not in the northeast georgia area and can't listen live here on wrwh 93.9 fm but it's great to know uh, if you're listening online where you're located just to know how far this program is getting out there but also it's good to know from the gardening perspective because we have answered questions from uh, western united states northern united states not just here in the southeast and things may be dramatically different if we're talking about certain subjects maybe what kinds of plants or what types of things to use in the garden Uh, so keep that in mind that if we don't know where you're from We'll answer it as if you are here in our backyard and you're one of our close neighbors here in Northeast Georgia. Uh, But with that being said, we do have a number of questions from the backlog. And again, apologies for not knowing that you had sent these. But I do think that um, you can still, uh, we can still answer these questions. Some of them may not be super timely, but maybe going forward it will be helpful. And like I said, if you get a question, we answer questions um, at the end of the month the last Saturday of the month, so we will be back here at the end of May uh, going to the mailbag, we'll go into the mailbox and that uh, strange folder that certain things have been sent to, so no problem, no worries. Uh, Let's go ahead and get started because we've got a number of questions. Nancy is in Georgia, Pooler, Georgia. Nancy from Pooler, Georgia uh, mentions that she planted some arborvitaes in 2022. The arborvitaes are doing well, but they have a little browning. And two questions come from this. How do I trim these arborvities and how do I fertilize them? Well, Nancy, again, thank you for your question and sorry for the delay in responding. But the arborvitae let's start about, this. before we get about the pruning and fertilizing, let's talk about the browning aspect. Because browning on an arborvitae can be completely natural or it can be a bit unnatural. Meaning that it doesn't, is not supposed to happen. But it all depends, Nancy, on the kind of browning and where you're seeing the browning on the plant. Now, true browning, when we say browning, is going to be where the leaves are dry, they become papery, and they're a very uh, sort of uh, pale, tannish, yes, brown color. However, there is a case with arborvitaes and many conifers that is called bronzing. Now, bronzing usually happens on the outside of the plant. The outer leaves will turn this off color. We like to describe it as bronze because brown insinuates that the material, the leaf material, is dead. But bronzing is actually uh, a, an off color for living and viable leaves. Now, the bronzing happens particularly when the weather cools down and lasts all winter long. So, even from a distance, your arborvitis have this bronze sheen on the outside of them. Now, that is completely natural because that uh, bronzing is induced by cooler weather, which is why uh, I know your question was uh, from a couple of months ago. And so, you hopefully are already seeing... That bronze turning to green and maybe even new bright green growth on the tips. Folks, if you have arborvitaes, they will usually look an odd color. Some people describe it as brown, but again, brown is going to be dead leaves, whereas these bronze leaves are very much alive. Think of it as a winter coat, you know, like your dog sheds and has a new coat or (laughs) whatever. This is the plant's winter coat, winter color. So, Nancy, if you're seeing that or if you did see that in the cooler months, don't be worried. That is completely natural. Now, let's talk about real browning. Now, browning can be identified by it. It's definitely there's no kind of under color of green to it. The leaves themselves of a brown uh, browning is going to be uh, dry, there will be no moisture in them. They will be completely dry, and there's no life there. Usually, browning happens every year, a couple of times a year, on the interior of the plant. If your arborvitae is old enough that you uh, can't see the interior, then do a little discovery, do a little uh, exploring, and look inside, move some branches aside, and look inside of the plant and actually see the interior. And you will notice there are true brown, crispy, crunchy leaves. That is completely normal. And it could happen uh, heavily in the fall time and then maybe again in the springtime. Now, those brown leaves on the inside of the plant Those leaves are the older leaves. And plants are different than people. You know, they can drop parts of their plant and regenerate new parts. (laughs) People can't lose a finger and regrow a finger. But plants can lose leaves and regrow leaves. Now remember, plants grow from the inside out. So the older part of a plant will be on the interior, on the inside. And it is completely normal for plants to get rid of old material in order to make new material. Now, if you notice your arborvitaes doing this in the fall time, that's just a signal that the plant is getting rid of older leaves and storing water, nutrition, fertilizer, if you will, into the root system so that it can hibernate. It can go dormant for the winter. Then in the springtime, if you notice these interior leaves turning brown, it's completely normal because the plant is pulling water and nutrition from the older parts of the plant and putting it into growth, into new leaves. So if that's where you're seeing the browning, no problem. That could be at any point during the year, but definitely you'll see browning heavier from the interior, of of, of the plant in the fall, and then again, maybe in the spring. And it could happen on and off throughout the year. Now, the third type of browning here. So we've got bronzing, which is normal. Uh, Browning on the interior of the plant, which is normal. However, Nancy, if you're seeing browning on the exterior of the plant, from the tips inward, then that could be signaling a problem for the plant. What could some of those problems be? Well, first of all, when I see an arborvitae, because they're quite disease-resistant currently, the more we grow arborvitaes, the more chances we'll have disease problems. But currently, they don't suffer from any major diseases we know of. So the first place I look for, if I have a branch that is turning brown, is I look for a break somewhere along the branch. It's very possible that a branch has snapped or broken, become weak somewhere, and it has cut off, that break has cut off water supply and nutrition to the exterior of that branch and so naturally the branch starts dying back. If that's the case, you can completely remove the the branch or remove it where the break was as long as there is some green growth behind the break so that you can have new growth otherwise it's a very good idea to remove an entire branch where it originates at the trunk to make sure that uh, no disease does come in or rot comes in but then again if you don't see a break if you don't see something there that's actually separated the branch from the mother plant then that branch might be susceptible to some kind of disease, which, again, the treatment is kind of the same. We would completely remove the branch and probably start the plant on some kind of disease prevention, some kind of disease prevention. So if you're seeing brown branches, that can be concerning. Entire branches or browning at the tips, that can be concerning. Browning from the interior is natural, is normal, can happen on and off throughout the year. Um, But... What about trimming? You did ask, Nancy, how do I trim these arborvitaes? The key about arborvitae trimming, as with any conifer, and conifer are these plants with those small, usually lacy-like leaves. They don't produce flowers. Uh, They may produce cones from time to time. These kinds of plants cannot undergo a lot of heavy, heavy trimming. So when you trim any conifer like arborvitae, remember, you can only prune it Where there is green, do not prune past the green into the brown wood. Because unlike a gardenia or a hydrangea or a holly, we can trim those wherever, however low we want to, to the ground, particularly in spring, and they'll rejuvenate with a new plant. But conifers do not have the ability to uh, sort of generate these spontaneous buds for growth, So, we can only prune where there's green, and then that green will then uh, give more green, more foliage. So, Nancy, when you prune, don't prune them too deeply. Be sure you're leaving some kind of green near the tips of your prune, uh, your pruning cut. And then you do ask Nancy about fertilizing. How do you fertilize them? Well, like with most. uh, garden plants, a well-balanced fertilizer, meaning give it everything it needs. Give it everything that it needs. Uh, nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, all the micronutrients. A slow release is good. 60 days, 90 days slow release. Look for Osmocote, Floracan. These products are usually slow release. It's going to last the plant. And you could make sure that the nitrogen is a bit higher because arborvitis produce a lot of green growth and nitrogen is going to produce grain growth. Well gang, you more of your questions when we get back from this break. Thank you Nancy for your question. We'll see you on the other side of this break. Hooray. where you can not only find every episode of the show ever, but you can also send us a question via our Contact Us page. It's never fun gardening alone. So get social with the New Southern Garden family, and let's grow well.
0: Give it a go!
1: So gang, today on New Southern Garden, we are answering your questions, and with some apologies because we had a backlog of questions that were in a folder that we don't check regularly. I don't know why they went to that folder. Hopefully we can straighten that out. However, we don't want to let a question go unanswered. So some of these may be a bit outdated because some of them were from, I think this issue started, it looks like, in January. And so I know things have changed since January. We could have added your questions to uh, the appropriately timed show, Uh, but uh, unfortunately, we just found these questions, but we do appreciate you sending them, so we want to make sure that we can help you be successful in your own unique situation, wherever you're growing, whatever you're growing, we want to make sure we can help solve some of these problems, and so, of course, before the break, we were talking, uh, answering Nancy's question from Pooler, Georgia, about arborvitaes, and I think... That it's a good question for all of us because arborvitaes are in that strange group of plants that we call conifers. And I do want to reiterate that when we're pruning these conifers, we don't want to prune past the green. Okay? Let's put it this way a pine tree, you know, if you're living here in the southeast, a pine tree is pretty common. Uh, pine trees are conifers. If we chop a pine tree down to the ground, It will not regenerate any new buds or shoots. If we chop a poplar tree, which is a broadleaf plant, an oak tree, which is a broadleaf plant, a maple tree, which is a broadleaf plant, you get the point. If we chop any of those broadleafs down, they will try to sucker and put out new stems from the rootstock or from the base of that trunk uh, itself. But these conifers, they do not respond uh, in the same manner as broadleaf plants so when it comes to pruning a camellia a hydrangea a gardenia an azalea we can really hack and whack those back as much as we'd like particularly in the springtime and they will generate new leaves and new stems but with a conifer like arborvitis, false cypresses cryptomeria some of our favorite conifers for the south We've got to be a bit careful. So here's a bit of a tip. If you need to maintain the size of a conifer, you can do that. If you need the conifer to stay smaller than it naturally wants to be, you can do that, but you've got to be a bit religious about pruning. You've got to make sure that you're pruning maybe every year, maybe every other year, that you are regularly pruning so that you never let the plant get larger than you want and then you've got a lot of sort of brown growth on the interior and all the leaves are on the tips you can only prune a conifer where there is green once you prune past the green it's not going to recover it's not going to recover so thanks again nancy feed those babies well give them high nitrogen fertilizers but well balanced to make sure they have everything they need and of course a slow release so that it um, trickles it trickles and feeds the plant over a certain amount of time Now, Wayne, Wayne had a question. He was starting cucumber plants indoors. And again, sorry, Wayne, for the delay here, uh, but we do appreciate you sending this question. Uh, He was starting cucumber plants indoors in order to plant outside uh, into his garden. So his cucumber plants came up. They looked good, he says, and then they fall over and die. And he wants to know why. Well, Wayne, starting plants indoors, we talked about that a little earlier this year, but starting plants indoors that will eventually be grown outside or somewhere on a patio, in a pot, in the vegetable garden, in raised beds, it's a good idea. And generally, all you need for most plants is uh, four to six weeks before the last frost, and you can do that. So we could have started things in March, right? And it sounds like Wayne definitely did. We're just delayed here. (laughs) But... Starting things indoors can sometimes be problematic um, as far as a seedling goes. Now, usually... A seedling is, is, well, here's what happens. Uh, once you plant the seed, moisture starts to penetrate the seed coat. It goes on the interior of the plant, interior of the seed, I should say, where there is an embryo, where there is a young baby plant that is going to start growing. And that embryo starts developing. The first thing to crack out of a seed coat is the root. We call it the radical radicel radical radisol. and that comes out that's the first it's like the the seed root if you will it's it's the beginnings of the plant's root system then after the root comes out it starts taking in water taking in nutrition and then maybe a few days later which we rarely see the radical come out because of course it's underground but a few days later we will start to see leaves emerge but they're actually not leaves we sort of have a short stem and tube in the case of cucumber two little leaves now some people we call them seed leaves because they are leaves not really leaves they're seed leaves that were inside of the seed what the biologists call them are cotyledons cotyledons so they're not true leaves but they do turn green and they can photosynthesize and they can make energy for the young plant to continue to grow So the seed leaves come out, then right in the middle, you'll see this growing point. That is the apical growing point right between those two cotyledons, those seed leaves. And that part is critical because from that apical meristem or that apical growing point is going to come out true leaves, true leaves. And then the plant just goes crazy from there. However, while these uh, seedlings are young, There can be one major issue, and I think, Wayne, this is probably what you're dealing with. From your description, the best word I see here to help me is they fall over. Now, this falling over of a seedling kind of makes me think that somewhere at the ground level, somewhere at the ground level, there is a break or a wither, and the plant literally falls over, and it sort of breaks in half. The radical, the root part, is still below ground, but the above part, the, the seed stem and the seed leaves, is falling over, separating from the root. Now, if that is what happened, Wayne, if that's what was happening, then that is critical information because there is something uh, called dampening off. Dampening off refers to a seedling that becomes infected uh, with a disease. Usually, it's one called Phytophthora, but there are maybe some others that could present this way and what happens is it literally damages, destroys that uh, union between the root of the plant and the shoot of the plant, if you will, and what happens is that damage causes the seedling to fall over or dampen off. Dampen off. I don't know why they call it dampening off, but that is what it sounds like you're describing. Now, dampening off, can be a problem from two directions. Obviously, there has to be uh, the disease uh, pathogen. It has to be there. And using a sterile media whenever you're growing seedlings. So a uh, soil mix, that's for seed starting, that is sterile. Now, you can grow seedlings in something like uh, compost. And if you're making it at home, if you're buying it. But sometimes those aren't completely sterile. So starting with a sterile media, something that you know, it's either set it on the bag or most bag products that have peat moss and perlite and vermiculite, those usually are sterile, but if it's been outside for a year and you want to reuse it, it may no longer be sterile because disease could surely have fallen in. Starting with a sterile media is critical. The other thing, Wayne, that's critical, especially growing them indoors, is not keeping that soil, that media you're growing in too wet. We do need to keep the media quite moist while the seedling is germinating. But as soon as the seedling pops those leaves up, those seed leaves, those cotyledons, it's time to back off of the water a bit. If you maintain the moisture um, quite wet once the seedling starts that is going to increase the chance of this dampening off to take place dampening off can be very problematic when you have uh, particularly cool but also moist or wet conditions so dampening off can happen outdoors it's no problem this spring has been cool and uh, moist uh, for long periods and i would suspect that dampening off could be a problem this year even in uh, starting your seedlings outdoors but definitely indoors you have more control keep the um, the, keep the plants on something heated like a heating pad a, a germination pad that'll keep the temperature up but also once the seedlings start growing back off of the water and only water them as they need definitely keep the seeds moist but we don't want to keep a seedling wet Okay, Wayne, thanks for your question about cucumbers. I hope you find some success this year. After this break, we've got some questions about planting with hydrangeas. So hang on tight. We'll be right back.
0: Greenness unfolded.
1: Well, gang, welcome back to New Southern Garden. Of course, I'm your gardening pal, Nathan Wilson, and I'm glad that you've decided to join us. Maybe you're just joining us. We're in the second half of the program, and I need to catch you up, get you up to speed. Today is Q and A week, so we are answering your specific questions, your specific problems. Everybody's gardens are different, and so we like to make sure that we can help you, uh, not just inspire you to try new things, do new things, different plants, different methods, different tools, whatever we've talked about. We also want to help you in your personal landscape uh, because it's unique. It's very unique, and already we've talked to uh, answer Nancy's question from Pooler, Georgia, about arborvitis And uh, before the break, we were answering a question about probably a disease issue that happens to seedlings, which is called dampening off. Usually it's caused by a pathogen known as Phytophthora. Uh, but it sort of is a rot, and it just rots the base, the base of your young seedlings, and they fall over. And that's exactly what Wayne said happened, is they come up, they look good, then they fall over think Wayne it was staying maybe too 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 moist maybe too cool Of course we're growing you were starting them indoors so 70 ish degrees is not bad but starting your uh, plants on a heating mat which is um, you can actually buy them just for propagating plants for starting seeds these heating mats come in very handy because what the research shows is that if the soil is warmer then germination happens faster So being sure that you're keeping that soil warm is critical to get these things, these seeds to pop up. But then as soon as germination happens, in order to help prevent this phytophthora dampening off even further, we want to pull back on the moisture. Remember, a seedling needs to... I'm sorry... A seed needs to stay moist until it germinates. But once the seedling the seed has become a seedling and you actually have a plant with those green leaves, the seed leaves, then we can pull back on the water a bit, or we may encourage phytophthora to cause that terrible dampening off. And I think Wayne that it was probably your problem. But we do want to go in a different direction. Because, of course, uh, we are answering a backlog of questions that were in a strange folder, sent to a strange folder that's not checked regularly. I guess it's just technology. We're going to have to figure that out. But Jan, a few weeks back, did submit a question to NewSouthernGarden.com. And she is looking. She has planted some hydrangeas, but she's looking for something in between them. And here is the requirements for the new plants she wants to add. The plants need to be deer resistant, they need to be evergreen, they don't need to be too big, and she is planting near the house in partial sun. Those are all critical factors, of course, Jan, uh, deer resistance is becoming an increasingly difficult problem to deal with trying to keep the deer away what would they just uh yesterday i was looking at my roses at the house and i had this beautiful cecil bruner rose which is sort of a rambling rose gets kind of big spills over fences climbs up a bit well it's a young plant uh, we propagated just a couple of years ago but the cecil bruner a good old historic plant uh, kind of a heritage rose if you will heirloom rose and last week they had beautiful flower buds, looking good, looking good, waiting for it to bloom. So I checked it yesterday, all the buds had been eaten off, and I could tell it was eaten. <laughs> they were just pulled and shredded off, and the deer have come by. So looking for things that are deer resistant, it's a short list. It's a short; it's getting shorter. It's getting shorter every day, but Jan, will do our best to keep that in mind. Evergreen, of course, means that these plants need to keep their leaves all year long, particularly through the winter. Uh, not too big. We'll try to recommend some small plants, maybe up to three feet or so. And, of course, planting in partial sun helps because uh, we can do a number of things in partial sun. So, Of course, we're starting with hydrangeas. Now, Jan didn't mention what kind of hydrangeas, so we will sort of assume that they are the big-leaf hydrangeas, the blue or the pink ones. Of course, some big-leaf hydrangeas can be quite white in blossom as well. So we've got sort of this color palette, and if Jan is growing here in the south, which I believe she is from what she said, um, your soil in our Piedmont area is probably going to be a bit acidic, which means our hydrangeas tend to be a blue color uh, in our acid soils. So if we're planting between hydrangeas, of course, not knowing exactly which hydrangea, those could be quite tall. Some of the big leaves can be six foot, uh, but for maybe uh, averaging sake, we'll say between six to f- uh, three to five feet tall on these hydrangeas. So if we're going to place some plants in front of these hydrangeas, they probably need to be at least half the size. They don't need to compete with the hydrangeas in size. So I think that probably up to a three foot shrub is going to be helpful. Now, of course, hydrangeas themselves are not exactly deer resistant, are they? If you have hydrangeas and deer, you know that hydrangeas are candy. as food for for the deer Uh, but hopefully by planting some plants which we know tend to be uh, quite deer resistant hopefully that will discourage the deer now that's not a guarantee because uh, you never know deer have feet they have legs they can move they can move quickly they can move slowly they can meander they can take a gander here take a gander there and so they will probably be able to get around Uh, these deer resistant plants and still find the hydrangeas but it's not a bad move to use in any case deer resistant plants alongside plants that deer favor so that hopefully there's a bit of deterrence it's not always the case not always the case but that sort of is our hope so let's go ahead and start we do have to consider that we're dealing in partial sun so things that need full sun we wouldn't say, you know, recommend a rose, but roses don't fit into any of this category. Roses are more of a sun plant, but there are some plants that are going to fall between full sun and full shade. And some plants can take a bit uh, more shade than others and some plants maybe need a more a bit more shade than others. So with partial sun though, Jan, I think that we've got a pretty good open base. So let's start with my first thought. My first thought, whether it is a sunny site or whether it is a shady site, my first thought about deer resistance and evergreen and not too big is gardenia. Now, I'm not saying gardenias are the perfect plant, but gardenias do have this uh, sort of natural odor that it's hard for you and me to sense. However, if you're in a greenhouse full of gardenias, you can smell, even without their blossoms, you can smell this... Sort of odor they emit. It's sort of sweet, sort of sour, but deer don't seem to like it. They can sense it even around one plant, uh, and they seem to not like it one bit. So, gardenias is a great choice, but you need to be selective with your gardenia choice because some of them get very large. Some of them get very large. One of the standard large gardenias is called August Beauty. So Jan, don't go for August Beauty, even though it's a great gardenia. I would look for a couple of gardenias. One is called Frostproof. Frostproof fared very well this year. Uh, There was some damage over winter, so there is a drawback. If we have a single degree digit in uh, winter again, They will probably have some issues, but they didn't die. They just got set back and lost their leaves. But they are in a decent winter, normal winter, evergreen, frost-proof, gets to three, maybe four feet tall, so it should be a bit shorter than your um, um, hydrangeas. And of course, you get those gardenia flowers in the summer. So by the time your hydrangea is almost finished blooming, unless it's a rebloomer, then this gardenia could kick in with its beautiful jasmine like fragrance, white rosy like flowers, uh, and it will finish out the summer for you. Then if you want even smaller, Shorter, there is another gardenia called radicans. We've talked about these on the program before, but I think that this would be a very good fit for you because the radicans only gets about 24 inches tall. So it could nearly be a skirt up in front and around your hydrangea plantings. Again, it comes with that same deer resistance. It has the white blossom in the summer up until frost and... It's going to be evergreen so it's going to be a short statured plant uh, wider than it is tall maybe three to four feet wide and again 24 inches tall or so but it will give you an evergreen skirt around the base of your gardenias uh, hydrangeas listen whenever we play with gardenias and hydrangeas and camellia and azalea nothing says more southern garden <laughs> than those plants so gardenias for their evergreenness partner well with the deciduous or dropping of leaves over winter uh, that the hydrangeas definitely will do. Now, another choice um, might be abelia. Okay, abelia can do partial sun, part shade, part sun, however you want to describe that, say five hours of direct sun a day or less um, or more, quite versatile. Now, the abelias are evergreen, but they tend to be semi evergreen. They still look very good. They have leaves on their uh, outside uh, over winter, but the interior of abilias they usually drop their leaves on the inside, some leaves. Uh, However, Since we're looking for a plant that doesn't get too big, the great thing about abelia is that if you wanted to, you could trim your abelias down to the ground, maybe eight inches above the ground, in late winter, early spring, every year, and they will send out brand new growth that is going to flush out and really just start the plant over. Now, I don't trim, well, in the nursery, we trim our abelias every year, but in the ground, I may trim um, to the ground every couple of years, which helps to maintain their size. Even though the abilia, some of the new ones, like Kaleidoscope and Radiance and Super Gold abilia, very bright, colorful, colorful plants, even though... Uh, uh, What was I saying? Yes. Those plants, these new ones, have a bit of dwarfism to them. Uh, Some of them are listed at three, maybe five foot tall. So I know five feet is on the large size, but let them grow to four feet, maybe three and a half, and then the next year cut them down. And Yes, it's a little bit of work, but the that helps to keep the abelias quite dense and full of stems and leaves every year. Then, of course, abelia is a summer bloomer, and pollinators love them. They have these little bell-shaped flowers that cluster and hang down, uh, usually in pinks. Some of them are purple, uh, purple-tinged, uh, but many of them are white. And most of the time, we see this sort of uh, white with a pink blush. Uh, Rose Creek is sort of becoming an old-fashioned abelia but it's a great abelia it's got a dark green leaf sort of a red stem really attractive flower Uh, but try out look for some of the more colorful varieties like i said kaleidoscope radiance abelia hopleys. it's a a nice variegated and 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 also the super gold Uh, those are some great colorful uh, uh, choices for uh, being right in front of hydrangeas even without blooms Those variegations on the leaves and bright yellows, they will contrast very well with a pink blossom or blue blossom and the green leaves of the hydrangea so gardenias or abelias are good choices now i think that um, there is another selection you may want to look into which is called you not true you but cephalotaxis that's the botanical name but the cephalotaxis uh, is uh, there's one called creeping plum you and it gets wide it's only about 24 inches tall but it does get maybe three to four feet wide and it can just skirt and undercarriage kind of those those hydrangeas keeps its leaves all year looks like a fern its leaves are very very thin it's in the conifer family like arborvitaes uh, but these things stay quite low they get quite wide so you won't need very many of them but regardless the yew tends to be very dis- uh, deer resistant so gardenias abelias use all great deer resistance all evergreen they don't get too big and they can handle partial sun Jan, thank you for your question about planting with hydrangeas. I do it all the time at my house. We've got so many. Uh, But after this break, we've got more of your questions here on New Southern Garden. Hang on tight. so gang today on new southern garden well it's the end of the month the last saturday of the month which means that we are answering your questions where did april go seems like we were just starting april out with all of the great uh sort of enticement that spring brings it's been an up and down roller coaster as far as weather goes as far as rain goes we've had periods of rain there was a Just before this last run of rain, it seemed like we were going quite dry. We were watering two, sometimes three times a day at the nursery just to keep up with the amount of moisture loss because it was so warm. Then it gets cool all of a sudden. So, welcome to uh, gardening in the south. Welcome to spring in the south. I don't know. Some days are summer, some days are spring. Some days feel like winter, don't they? But I'm sure it will all level out next month. We'll just have to hope and pray. So today we are answering your questions. We've already answered questions about trimming and fertilizing arborvitaes and maybe some browning that they have. We've talked about uh, seedlings falling over, seedlings germinating, and then just falling over and dying. Uh, Then, of course, before the break, we were talking about some deer-resistant, evergreen, smaller plants in partial sun to grow with hydrangeas. And of course, hydrangeas are plants that drop their leaves. And so you do probably want to partner hydrangeas with something that is evergreen. So if you've missed any part of today's program, feel free to check us out online at NewSouthernGarden.com. You can find this episode and every episode of the show we've ever had posted there. And also on your favorite podcasting app, you just uh, uh, search for New Southern Garden on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, where else, Apple Podcast. Yep. Apple Podcast, Google Play Music. Just search New Southern Garden, hit the like button or the TuneIn app. Yeah, you need to download the TuneIn app. I, I talk about this from time to time because if you're ever out of town and you can't get WRWH on your radio because you're out of range, you can listen to what's happening here back at home, even in your travels, on the TuneIn app. Just find WRWH and Put the heart button. Press the heart button beside it. That means it's one of your favorites, and I know that it is. Uh, But, of course, we will be answering your questions at the end of next month, so if you want to drop us off a question at the website, feel free to do so or on Facebook and Instagram. Now, the last question we I think we'll have time for today is from Matthew, who's here in Northeast Georgia. So he's one of our gardening neighbors, uh, close neighbors. We're all gardening neighbors, aren't we? No matter where we are, just distance is the only thing that separates us, and we can travel. <laughs> but let's say he is uh, looking for the best garden soil for vegetables in the ground and growing in pots. And that's two big different things. Um, so, Matthew, thank you for the, your questions here. Uh, also, he says he has used local chicken manure, which is good. That's a good product. Um let's divide this question into two pieces if we're growing vegetables in the ground that'll be piece one and if we're growing vegetables in pots that'll be piece two and i may throw in growing vegetables in raised beds growing vegetables in raised beds and pots is very similar but can be quite different in some respects let's just start about growing vegetables in the ground Matthew, I'll tell you the thing that the research tells us. What the research tells us is that the best soil amendment, the best soil amendment is mushroom compost. It has outperformed soil conditioner, manures, uh, leaf litter. It has outperformed these other amendments in the research. So the trouble, though, is, of course, mushroom compost, being the Cadillac of soil conditioners, Maybe a bit expensive. It's a little pricier to get your hands on. You've already mentioned that you've used chicken manure, and there's nothing wrong with that. That is is great. Now, of course, we don't want to use fresh chicken manure chicken litter. We want it to be somewhat decomposed. At least let the heat, if it's piled up and it's going through heat, let it cool off and then add it to your soils. But if you're growing vegetables in the ground, um, I would never replace the soil. I would only work to improve the existing soil. And adding organic matter is critical. Now, other than adding these dead organic matters, in the off-season, Matthew, if you want to improve your soil, you can grow a green manure or a cover crop, that's where we may grow some kind of uh, grass, an annual grass, uh, some kind of maybe clover, and hopefully an annual clover, because perennial clover can get messy, um, beans, any kind of grass. Um, uh, Uh, Grass or beans is usually a great cover crop because the grass will provide lots of organic matter as you mow it down and till it into the earth and then the beans will also fix a lot of nitrogen into your soil so you're creating this quite nutritious fertile soil. So, yes, use any of these things you've got. Now, of course, at Lanier Nursery and Gardens, we've recently partnered with a local company. Uh, They're based out of Gainesville, but they have operations uh, around northeast Georgia. And they are uh, supplying us with an organic compost. It's a wonderful product. It's quite nutritious. It's as... uh, as black as coal so you know the darker it is the richer it is Uh, but it does supply a lot of organic matter to any raised bed i would use it in a raised bed and just fill up the raised bed and grow in it we use this product in our containers and we grow directly in it it drains well but it holds on to moisture Uh, with that being said build your in-ground vegetable plots with any kind of organic matter you can find. Um, Not all organic matter is the same. I know we're running short on time, but be sure you try to find things that are weed-free, that have gone through a heat, So if they've been piled up and they have been decomposing, that's great. That's wonderful. You need sort of a mixture of particle sizes. You need some particles that are larger and some particles that are smaller. That is ideal because that will help with water retention, but also with water drainage. Now, let's talk about growing vegetables in a pot. What is the best soil? You surely could use like this organic compost we've been talking about from the Georgia Soil Company. Um... However, you can use a potting mix. You know, some are peat based. I like Georgia Soil Company's potting mix because it is locally sourced. There's no peat moss in it, it's peat free. Remember, Peat moss is a non-renewable resource and this business has been addicted to peat moss for decades and eventually it's going to deplete. So we need to be sure we're sourcing local products for the future. We need to find out now what we can grow in and what we can get that is renewable so that we can continue growing uh, with nice, well-developed mixes. But as long as the mix drains well, holds on to water, it should be appropriate for a pot. I would not use soil from the ground in a pot because, of course, it's going to be very heavy. Uh, There may be some things in the soil that you don't want to put into your pot. Uh, But regardless, some soils, particularly our soils, don't drain well. If it's in a pot, it needs to drain well. So you can always do a mixture of compost, maybe with some soil conditioner, or I like to just really mix it all up. Use some mushroom compost. Use some uh, uh, organic compost. Use some chicken manure. The idea, Matthew, is that in order to build your vegetable plot, it's going to be a process over several years and using both the dead die, dead organic matter that you buy in bulk or, you know, uh, chicken litter, these things, and then also using green manures and cover crops. If your plot is just... Um, uh, uh, Fallow, if you're not growing on it during the fall time or winter time, that is a good time to do your cover crop because you can increase the nutrition and fertility of a soil by allowing these green manures or cover crops to work while You're resting yourself. Well, gang, thank you for all your questions. Sorry about the delay. We got the technical issues squared away. Uh, So I hope that uh, you have a great weekend growing and gardening. For WRWH 93.9 FM and New Southern Garden, I'm Nathan Wilson. Stay well and grow well. Give it a go. See you next week.